Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Houston, we have a problem here. Six words that are burned into the memory of many around the world as the start of one of the most daring and brilliant rescues and turnarounds of our time. The date was April 14, 1970, and Capcom, or Mission Control, had asked astronaut Jack Swigert to stir the oxygen tanks. Thirteen, we've got one more item for you. When you get a chance, we'd like you to stir up the cryo tanks, was the command from Jack Luzmer at Mission Control. But because of an electrical fault, one of the oxygen tanks exploded. That explosion on board Apollo 13 marked the start of one of the greatest rescue missions in human exploration, But the three crew members, Jim Lovell, Jack Swigert, and Fred Hayes, owed their lives to the entire NASA team on the ground, who worked tirelessly to develop a plan to bring the astronauts back to Earth safely. The team on the ground, led by the iconic flight director, Gene Kranz, worked around the clock to develop a plan to conserve power and oxygen while also working to develop a new trajectory that would allow the spacecraft to return to Earth safely. The team also had to work together to solve a number of technical challenges, such as devising a way to create carbon dioxide filters out of spare materials on a spacecraft. Despite the incredible challenges, the team's collective efforts paid off the spacecraft was able to return to Earth safely, and the crew members were hailed as heroes for their bravery and resilience in the face of adversity. The story of the Apollo 13 mission is a testament to the power of teamwork. The entire NASA team, including astronauts, engineers, and scientists, worked together seamlessly to overcome incredible obstacles and achieve an amazing, difficult goal. The mission demonstrated that, with the right mindset and a shared sense of purpose, anything is possible. Medicine requires the same teamwork and mindset to bring a unified sense of purpose and the best possible experiences to each and every patient that enters a health system seeking compassion and care. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Timothy Babineau, He's a principal at ECG. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dr. Nick. Thanks for having me. So uh, you've been a successful leader, CEO of a health system for an extended period of time. You've really driven 
Um, enormous expansion, I think, um, presence in the market. Tell us what your secret was and what you learned through that process to get this amazing success. Well, thank you, Dr. Nick. Yeah, it was a great uh, honor and privilege to, to lead the healthcare system in Rhode Island that I did for, for more than a decade. And obviously during a particularly challenging time during the pandemic. Um, you know, I don't think there's any one secret. I think one of the things that was one of my priorities that that proved to be successful is really focusing on the people that come to work every day. Um, if you take care of your people well, your providers, your nurses, they'll take good care of your patients. And while obviously patient care is our top priority, as it should be, as, as it's been my whole life, I, I think what I learned as the CEO is, unless you invest in your people, unless you take care of your people, you're gonna struggle. You're gonna struggle in the market, you're gonna struggle to grow, and, and you're gonna struggle to provide you know, excellent, excellent patient care. You know, so often we say, and quite appropriately, you know, patients come first. Of course they do, but your people come first also, right? So I, that was a lesson that I, that I learned early in my tenure, um, I spent a lot of time investing in our workforce, and that paid off. That paid off in the market and, and paid off in, in excellent patient care. So do you think that sense of uh, employee, and, and let's be clear, in particular the clinicians, but not to exclude all of the supporting act, um, you know, all of that contributes because nothing happens without the supporting act to bring all of this together. But do you think that part of that insight and ability to see directly to that key um, success factor was that you practiced. I mean, you spent time at the clinical coalface delivering day-to-day -day care. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I think the answer to that is yes. So again, I had the privilege, as you might have mentioned, of being a, a busy surgeon in Boston for 20 plus years. And, you know, I was in the hospital every day in every part of the hospital and, and learned how important it is uh, for all members of the team to contribute to patient care. One of my favorite sayings, if you, if you called any of my own old colleagues at Lifespan and say, you know, what, what was Babineau's most famous expression? What, what did he say five times a day? They would all say, I said, medicine is a team sport. Medicine is a team sport. And, you know, as a surgeon, that that's not always the view sometimes, right? You know, captain of the ship, my way of the high, that just doesn't work. Um, and it's sort of how I've practiced my whole career. When I was a surgeon, you know, I was only as good as my periop team, the anesthesiologist, the pre-op care, the post-op care, dietary laundry. Um, it's something that I've always believed in. And then to get a little bit more specific, even when I was CEO, um, I got out of bed every day and went to work really as a physician. I mean, that's really how I approached my job. So the decisions I made, the, the resource allocation, the hard decisions, it was really through the lens of a, of a practicing physician. Now, I, I went back and got my business degree and all that because you need to be able to speak the language, right? You need to be able to read a P&L sheet, a balance sheet, and those sorts of things. But, but I... To this day, um, I'm a physician, I'm a surgeon, and that's how I approached my work as CEO. And I, I think that served the organization well, and, and I think it served me well. 
So, I, you know, obviously I can relate and, you know, I'll, I'll declare my bias. I come in with precisely the same sort of feeling and sense that that particular training pathway gives you a completely different sense of the interaction with patients. It's truly a privilege. I'll, I'll be clear. I've always considered it as such. The trusting relationship that patients deliver. But you clearly stepped... I don't want to say away. It wasn't, you know, to a different activity, but it was to a different role and and um, responsibility that included some other things. And you brought them up, so finance and uh, balance sheets and so forth. I'm assuming that you had to learn. So there was some uh, aspect of this. How did you approach that? And and what were the key elements to to help you climb that particular hill? Yeah, great. Thank you. So when I was, you know, as I said, a, a busy surgeon in Boston for many years, 20 years, and, and I began to get more interested, for lack of a better word, the business side of medicine. My, my father, who was a literally the Norman Rockwell town doctor in the, in the town I grew up in, has been my biggest role model and, and mentor my whole life. When I told him I was thinking of switching the hospital administration, he accused me of going to the dark side. To, to, to which I said, well, dad, you know, you, you can curse the darkness or you can light a candle. Uh, I, I'm going to try to light a candle. So um, went back, got my business degree, because you really do need to be able to speak the language of the business of medicine. And although I was a very good clinician, I couldn't. So I got the building blocks of getting my MBA, of, of understanding business, PL, and And then I began to learn what it meant to run hospitals. And gradually, I became a chief medical officer and, and just kind of worked my way up the administrative ladder. And, and Nick, the way I thought about it uh, and the way I still think about it is back when I was a practicing surgeon, um, and I, lo- I loved being a surgeon. It was I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I miss the operating room to this day. Um, I used to take care of patients uh, one at a time. As CEO, I take care of patients thousands at a time thousands at a time. And that's what I said to my dad. I said, dad, you know, uh, as a surgeon at, you know, three operations a day and that, but, but now I'm responsible for the 12,000 people who are in my hospital. And that's really how I approached it. But, but there was a learning curve, just like there was as a surgeon, right? You go through an internship residency, you become skilled and become mad. I had to do the same thing. You, you don't just all of a sudden go from being a busy clinical surgeon to running a $3 billion enterprise with 17,000 employees. I, I, I built up my knowledge along the way and loved it. I love to learn um, and I'm still passionate about healthcare. So, you know, a clear strategy and path that took you from, you know, busy clinician operating, um, you know, dealing with patients day to day through, you know, an educational track and also experience track that, you know, put you in this place. And I, I, I've had similar sort of exposure with technology in my particular case that said, you know, I could touch many more patients that I could, than I could physically lay hands on. But when you think about the general um, folks who run hospitals, the majority do not come through that pathway and don't go through the corresponding clinical ascension. So there is no, I'm trying to think of an equivalent MBA for for clinical expertise. 
How do we address that? Because I think that's one of the things that are missing. If you don't have that, I, I often question how can you possibly walk a day in the shoes? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And, and it's one that I've had some uh, spirited conversations with my peers around the country. Uh, look, I have a bias. I have a bias that um, physician leaders who have business expertise um, can be some of the best leaders. You look around the country, you know, Toby Cosgrove comes to mind, Glenn Steele comes to mind. Uh, they were role models. Now, that being said, uh, there are also some spectacular people who are not physicians and not nurses who do an amazing job running amazing institutions. What I found when I became CEO is I surrounded myself with people who knew a lot more than I did in areas that were not my area. So make sure I have a really good CFO make sure I have a, you know, a really good CIO because those are not my areas of strength. And when I look around the country at organizations that I consider top-notch that are led by um, non-clinical administrators, they tend to surround themselves with expert clinicians, right? So they, they recognize that they haven't been in the OR at three o'clock in the morning. So they make sure on their inner circle They've got some excellent, well-respected, seasoned clinicians, and they listen to them very closely. I would say if you look at organizations that perhaps struggle or perhaps are not in the top tier, it's sometimes because the non-clinical administrators don't recognize how important it is to listen to clinicians and to take their advice. But, but again, I think the ones that do well do what I said. Well, so rest assured, we're not going to enter into dangerous territory and start too many sporting analogies here. But I think, you know, your team sport aspect of this, I try and, you know, extend this into, let's be clear, soccer or football, as I would call it. But I, I just don't have the chops to do that. But I think clearly the uh, inclusion of those elements is a, a critical piece. And, you know, I think identifying that in those other individuals, um, you know, important for leaders to think about going forward. Let's talk a little bit about the direction that you took your facility, your health system. You know, there's, a, there's a, an extensive move to really push out into the community, into um, outpatient settings, that has to be financially and maybe as a clinician a little bit worrying because are we seeing the sort of dispersal and, you know, the loss of this, you know, the, the, the mothership where everything happens? How did you reconcile that in your mind? Yeah, good, good question. Um, it was a bit of a perfect storm uh, that happened. Um, like many large academic healthcare systems around the country, um, the mothership was full. And in fact, it was over full, right? We're over capacity. But the biggest challenge the big AMCs had in the last decade, exacerbated by the pandemic, was we were over capacity, right? So this notion that we had to keep filling the beds, there was a bit of a mind shift, number one. Number two, um, in order to control healthcare costs nationally, we needed to shift care to a less expensive setting. And the less expensive setting is outpatient, right? And a lot of what we were doing as an inpatient could be done as an outpatient. Now, as you pointed out, it can be a bit gut-wrenching financially since the vast majority of your margin comes from inpatient revenue. 
So when I said a perfect storm, we've got a couple things. We have hospitals that are full. We have the notion that we need to provide the right care in the right place, and often that's outpatient. And then the third thing that was happening simultaneously is this whole move to value-based care. So we were having very, very different conversations with our commercial payers around uh, what we would get paid for the outpatient care in a move to value-based care, more preventive care, providing care in a less expensive setting. That was in the best interest of the payers, right? They wanted to see that. But we couldn't just flip a switch and go from zero to 100 overnight. It's been a very gradual progression. But you're right. When I left after a decade, um, we were primarily an outpatient business. 55% of our revenue came on the outpatient side, not the inpatient side. When I took over, it was just the opposite. It was roughly 60% of the revenue was inpatient, 40%. So, you know, follow the money. There was some financial motivation moving direction. The hospitals were full. Patients wanted it. It's often better for patient care to do it in a more convenient outpatient setting. So it's been a, it's been a gradual shift, but it is a shift that I think will continue. If you look around again, the vast majority of systems that are expanding are expanding their outpatient facilities. Now, if you've got a 40-year-old outdated hospital you need to replace, that, that, that's another matter. But there aren't a lot of people building new inpatient bed towers to fill with patients. Some are, some are because they're just overwhelmed. But long-winded way of saying um, it, it, it's a shift, and, and it's a shift of, you know, if we have time, I'd like to talk about about you know, what's going on in the country now and, and what I think one of the fundamental flaws and challenges is going forward. Yeah, so, I, I, and that brings up the point that you highlighted in there, which, you know, I, I don't think I know many patients that go, woohoo, I'm going to hospital. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's really a system that's designed, you know, come, come to the, the, um, uh, the, the, the sort of mothership. We've struggled along uh, the way to really deliver a patient-centered approach. We talk a lot about it. I mean, I, I hear it all the time, but I feel like it's been this recurring theme, but lacking in actual delivery and, and um, you know, solving for the patient at the center. Did you manage to incorporate that into your uh, thinking and solutions? Yeah, great question. So, so two things. First, as you point out, um, healthcare doesn't follow normal econ economic rules and laws, right? We, we provide a good and a service that nobody really wants, right? Nobody really wants more healthcare, right? Number one. And number two, the patient, for the most part, is removed from the cost of that good, hmm. right? You know exactly what you're going to pay when you, when you buy a flat screen TV or a car or a watch. Um, patients don't. So one of the reasons we're in the mess we're in, in my opinion, economically speaking, is for the last 50 years, we had thought slash hoped um, traditional economic market forces would bring costs down. And in fact, just the opposite has happened, right? Competition in healthcare drives prices up. So, so that's one bucket of problems, right? The financial. The more fundamental issue, and you touched on it, is look, 
you know, the, the dirty little secret that's not so secret is the healthcare system we've built over the last 50 years is still fairly what I call provider centric, right? It is built primarily for the convenience of the providers, not our patients. Now, we're moving in that direction, but I'll be honest with you, for, for the last 10 years, we keep, we all keep, you know, put the patient at the center of everything we do, put the patient at the center of everything we do. We've made marginal progress in that direction. We all understand it's the right thing to do, but it's very, very hard until we acknowledge that some fundamental redesign of how we deliver healthcare occurs we're just going to kind of stagger and stumble along in our improvement efforts. It's going to take a radical rethinking to truly design processes and systems for the convenience and the well-being of the patient, even if it means somewhat inconveniencing our providers. Now, the caveat there, of course, is we have this whole other issue, be a topic for another one of these, you know, physician burnout resiliency, which is an enormous, enormous problem. So I can hear people listening to this podcast saying, what, you, you want to make it harder for doctors to do their job? Great point. Great, great point. I think we can do both. I think we can design a patient-centered healthcare delivery that also makes it easier for providers to do their job. We're not there yet. Right. And, and I think, you know, back to your medicine as a team sport, and, you know, the point that you made right at the outset, you know, whilst the patient is the center and the focus, it, nothing happens to the patient without the clinical team and all of the supporting services and delivering that. And that burnout issue, I think we're all deeply conscious of that, you know, both as clinicians, but also I think the awareness has really increased. Um, you, you know, we're seeing this tremendous strain in part driven, my sense of it is the economics that force people into, I, I, I'm going to call it a factory mentality that, you know, I think harms that one-on-one -on -one interaction, you know, that would tr be truly patient-centric. So as you think about it and you think about the future, where do you see this going and, you know, what are you going to be doing? <laughs> Thanks. Well, Again, um, I still care deeply about healthcare. I, I was one of those weird little kids who really wanted to be a doctor when he was five years old. So it's all I've ever known. It's all I've ever loved. You know, I stepped away from lifespan uh, to do something new. I, I still care passionately about healthcare in this country. So joined ECG as a principal, um, superb firm that does a lot of great work trying to fix the problems of healthcare in this country. And I'm really, uh, really excited to be part of the team and really excited to continue to work in this field. So all, all in all, highly complicated uh, system for all of the things that you described in terms of the pressures, you know, the inevitable sort of economics that it's driving us and have been, I, I'm, you know, I've, I've been heard to say frequently, the system is not broken, it's working as designed and we have to redesign the system. And, you know, the reality is that we need sort of help doing that. And I think you're, you know, ideally placed to be able to do so. Tim, thanks for joining me on the show. Dr. Nick, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. As you heard, we live in a complex, non-traditional business or system. 
it doesn't follow the normal economic rules and processes. As Tim said, you can either curse the darkness or light a candle and place the patient at the center of your activities, not to the exclusion of providing your staff with a supporting and nurturing environment where they don't just survive, but also thrive. It is possible to successfully hold to both of these ideals. Your better pill to swallow is to create the team spirit and bring together the right resources to help solve all the problems we have in healthcare and create a truly patient-focused healthcare delivery system, which, let's be honest, is what we all want. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.